Attention, this is a emergency evacuation drill. And I'm Grace. Welcome back. This is our podcast, Myths and Misfortunes. We are a paranormal and true crime podcast. And each week we pick somewhere different in the world and base our stories on that place. And if we can't find something there, we find somewhere (laughs) close. (laughs) (laughs) Just real quick, guys, we just want to take a second and let you all know that the first four episodes have some audio issues. And we are working on making the episodes in the future sound a whole lot better. Yeah, we're still getting used to our equipment and the editing process. Thanks for being patient, if you have been. If not, you're probably not listening, so whatever. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) But, I mean, we hope you're listening, but just... Our stories this week are based on Brighton, UK. And my sources for the history are localhistories.org, Wikipedia, and theculturetrip.com. Brighton is a town located in Sussex, England, and it is roughly 47 miles south of London. Brighton began as a small village founded by the Saxons. It was once called Bortham's Tun, and it was a fishing and farming village. The fishermen lived under the cliff, and the farmers lived above the cliff. Back in the 14th century, it was called Bristol-Mistoon in Brighton-Helmstone, and in 1313, Bristol-Helmstone became a market town. Fish markets were held daily on the beach, while pig, corn, and general markets were within the town. In the Middle Ages, there were also annual fairs that were held where buyers and sellers came from a very wide area surrounding the city and just sold all sorts of good. So like a big farmer's market. Yeah, like a big farmer's market, but they were only held once a year. You get a whole bunch of animals. You get a whole bunch of, like, farmed goods, a whole bunch of homemade goods. All that stuff were sold at the annual fairs. By 1340, the coast of the town had been eroded so much that nearly 40 acres of farmland had been reclaimed by the ocean. Dang. Despite this, the town continued to grow. In 1540, the French burned down the town, which was easy at the time because of the wooden walls and thatched roofs. By 1580... Brighton had rebuilt itself and was flourishing once again with a population of roughly 2,500. Brighton wasn't first coined until about 1660 and was just a shortened form of the town's name, Bristol-Helmstone. Bristol-Helmstone. Yeah, Bristol-Helmstone. That's a cool fucking name. Very metal. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) During this time, the fishing industry had also greatly declined due to the wars with France and Holland. In 1703 and 1705, huge, terrible storms struck England, completely devastating Brighton. They demolished many houses above and below the cliff, laid down two windmills completely to the ground, and tore the lead off of the church. The lead? The lead, like the lead, um... It just says, it just said tore the lead off of the church. By the 18th century, the population had fallen to about 1,500 people versus the 2,500 that it had had been 
just 200 years ago. That reminds me. My sister, I was having her listen to the other episodes. She sent me. We were, oh. When we were talking about clans, we didn't really understand the thing about the clans with their different last names and stuff. Oh, yeah. And I kind of thought something but I wasn't sure if that was right and she sent me a message and she said she felt like a nerd when we were talking about the clans and how they had different names because she had the answer but she couldn't answer. What's the answer? Um, it's basically that the families break off and make their own families but like with different last names but they're still part of the clan. So like family tree like we said. Yeah. Awesome okay so we were Say my right. And she said, yeah, they basically live off the clan lands. She said she screamed so many times when she was like, I can't tell you. Was this while she was at work? Yep. <laughs> Thank you for screaming, Melody, at work. She, she said, I only know a lot about the 12th century, um, which is the 1100s, by the way, mm -hmm. um, Scotland, because she couldn't get enough information from Outlander, which is based on the 16th century. Yeah. So she researched and couldn't stop. I understand. When it comes to different countries, researching something, you just... It, it grabs hold of you. Yeah, that's okay. why we are doing this podcast. <laughs> yes, it is. Anyway, where was I? 1,500 people. Okay. And the ocean had destroyed any of the remaining houses that were under the cliffs and even parts of the cliff itself. During the 1730s, Dr. Richard Russell of Lewis began prescribing the medicinal use of seawater in now Brighton for his patients. He wrote a tract advocating for the drinking of seawater and sea bathing in 1750. Two other doctors also advocated for this, Drs. John Ausseter and Anthony Rellin. After Dr. Russell's death in 1750, his house was lent to seasonal visitors, including that of the Duke of Cumberland and the Prince of Wales. In the 18th century, the population of Brighton had grown to roughly 4,000 after the visit by the Prince of Wales. The prince's patronage of the town for the next 40 years was a great attribute to the rapid growth of the town and the transition from the fishing-centric town to the modern town of Brighton today. The town became super popular as a health resort for the sea bathing and as a reported cure for illnesses. Following the arrival of railways in 1841, Brighton became a popular place for day trippers from London and the surrounding areas. The population then rapidly rose to 65,000 by 1861. Now, just remember that in the 18th century, this was only at 4,000, so this was a really huge leap in only a hundred-something years. During World War One, the Brighton Pavilion, which was built in 1850, was used as a hospital for Indian soldiers. In 1939, when World War II started, schoolchildren from London were evacuated to Brighton in order to avoid the German bombings. However, the evacuees were soon returned home because Brighton was not as safe as it was originally thought to be. The town suffered a total of 56 bombing raids with more than 5,000 houses damaged or destroyed. It's not even that big and you've got that much stuff going on. Yeah. Despite the tragedies that came with both world wars, Brighton continued to thrive and flourish as a seaside resort. In 1997, Brighton joined with the town of Hove to form the Unitary Authority of Brighton and Hove. A unitary authority is basically where the city or town became so big that they had to create their own small form of government in order to keep the peace. Like okay. J-Town in Louisville. when Fern it got Creek, all of that. Yeah. yeah, all those. Brighton has also unofficially become the LGBTQ plus capital of the UK. It has been almost 200 years in the making and most of the city's residents are fiercely proud of it. 
Its closeness to the capital and the expansion of easing regular transportation to the seaside made Brighton a major destination for those vacationing from London. After World War II, people began to notice Brighton's unique and diverse culture. Many began to come to Brighton in search of a safe place to explore their sexualities. Today, roughly 11 to 15 percent of all adults in Brighton identify as LGBTQ+. This influence can be seen in nearly every street, particularly in Kemptown. Pubs like the Bulldog, the Camelford Arms, and the Marlborough cater to the different segments of the LGBTQ plus population, including those who identify as non-binary. There is an abundance of services that offer support, acceptance, and even education throughout the community. That's really cool. I feel like a lot more places should do that. They really should. A lot more in... I know specifically down in Lexington, mm. Kentucky, I know that UK has a support community down there. Yeah, Lexington is pretty much like more known for accepting, especially when it comes to LGBTQ+. Plus. Plus. Each year in early August, LGBTQ plus spirit can be truly seen at Brighton Pride, the UK's largest pride festival. People come from all over the country, hundreds and thousands of people who are welcomed with one message. We are family. That's so sweet. We are family. You all can't see me, but I'm making a little heart for my with my hands. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Good, good, good. And that is the wonderful history of Brighton. See, I feel like we do, we've done so many, like, histories for all these different places so far and I have barely known anything about any of them and it shows you how small your worldview can be when you're at home all the time. Also how little they taught us in AP world history. I wasn't in that class. That how class little they taught hard. us in history at all. That's yeah. I think my biggest thing about it was the whole LGBTQ plus because I saw it on the Wikipedia page, and I was like, what? The biggest LGBTQ what? And then I asked to start <laughs> looking into it. <laughs> no wonder we just randomly picked this place. It's yeah, good. Well, it's a, some of it's good. Some of it's good, Some of yeah. it's good. Also, right. how much sea bathing you can do there. Even, like, non-medicinally, just, like, go swimming. It's so weird because over here... Um, you think of this, like, you think of the United Kingdom just being cold. Just all the time. But it's not. But it's not. No, it's not. I know. And so it just sounds really weird for people to be swimming in the UK. Because, <laughs> like, in my mind, for some reason, I always imagine it as, like, um, a series of unfortunate events. Like that beach that they go to. Oh, when they've got on those, like, really long swim. Yeah, yeah. And then she's got on the dress. and Yeah. Yeah. But we know you get warm, too. So Okay, so that kind of segues into mine today. I just want to let you all know my story does contain a brief mention of sexual assault that might be triggering for some listeners. So if that pertains to you, I advise that you move forward about 20 to 30 minutes until you get to Rachel's story. All right, so my sources for this story were Mirror... Mirror.co.uk, WTSP.com, Metro.co.uk, and Telegraph.co.uk. All UK sources getting right in there. So, on May 5th, 2015, tarot card reader Jane Braden was in her shop giving a reading to star Randall Hansen when something odd happened. The cards were shuffled and three of ten were laid out. 
The first card was the tower, which Brayden explained meant lots of arguments, lots of bad feelings. The second card was the emperor, which signified a dominant male. There seems to be a little bit of confusion about what the third card actually was. Three of my six horses, three of Three of those were mirror links, by the way. <laughs> like, they had three different ones, and two of them said something different than the other one. Okay. Some of them said that the third card was the devil. Some say that it was death. Well, for some people, they're interchangeable, so... Yeah, I guess. But, like, they... I mean, yeah, because, like, the devil normally mean It normally signifies, like, you. Mm-hmm. But so, do, so does death. Death is typically, like, um rebirth or um like something coming to the end so something new can start so it's like when it just makes me really annoyed when you see in movies <laughs> and stuff like um uh psychic putting down the death card and people are like oh my god i'm gonna die it's I'm not what it usually means horrible um, way yeah it's like that's not what that really means except in this case because as soon as he saw the card, he said, it's really bad, and broke oh. into tears. Oh, no. Yeah. Brayden told the man that they should talk through everything, that he should tell her what happened, and he replied, it's terrible. I killed him. Killed him? Yeah. Uh, he said it, that it was an accident and that he didn't mean to. And this tarot card reader is 1,000% cooler than I am because she calmly 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 told him she would have to call the police and then asked him if he would mind she asked him if he would mind and then wait asked if yes, he would asked the murderer if he would mind if, he would if mind, she called the cops called the police okay and then she stepped outside so she could call the police okay what well, the, the chillest person calling the police also the chillest murderer being okay with her calling the police? I, I guess so, cause I don't think if I, I was, I don't think if I was in her position, I'd be like, "Let, yeah, I'm just gonna call the police." And I don't think if I had murdered someone, I'd be like, "Okay, I guess." <laughs> you take that moment, run out the back door. Yeah, but okay. So I get a little <laughs> angry at this part because after she called the police, it took them an hour to arrive. Oh, because it was just, you know, not important that she had a well, murderer? When she called the police, the call handler downgraded the call to non-emergency. I hope that person was fired. I... I mean, I don't want anyone to be fired. No, but I mean, like, they have to use their judgment, and if they... If some, like, tarot card reader calls and is like, Hi, so I just read this guy's fortune, and um, it said that he killed somebody, and then he said that he did kill somebody. So if we could, like, get this all wrapped <laughs> up, I'd probably think they were crazy, too. I, I'm actually really hoping that's how it went down. <laughs> it's not. I mean, I mean, it kind of is. <laughs> okay. But So she thought it would take, like, like, 15 minutes for them to get there. And even though the call handler told her, it'll take up to 55 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it so, took an hour. Yeah. Okay. So she went back and asked him if he wanted a drink. So she went to the shop next door and said, don't ask, but can I please have a bottle of water? So she didn't raise the alarm to anyone else because she thought they would have panicked. And because there was, like, families on, like, out in on the, the beach. Street. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> I 
I don't know how she did it, because I would have been like, I don't know what's going on, he's gonna murder me. (laughs) So, uh, she gave him the water and they sat there chatting. She said she asked him the name of the deceased, where he had worked, um, and his friends. She asked where the wound was, where the knife was, but then he started getting upset and started crying, so she didn't ask him too many more questions, Mm -hmm. uh, because she didn't want him getting too Upset. upset. And all she had to protect her was a truncheon or, like, a bat, like a police baton. Oh, okay. I was going to say, um, what's a truncheon? That's <laughs> a trunchable. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just a, a trunchable. Trunchable. It was given to her by a friend of hers that was a police officer, and she also had a screamer alarm. What's a screamer alarm? You know, it just goes, like, Basically. <laughs> it's like... It alerts people that there's an issue. <laughs> I see yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> but yeah, that's all she had oh, in case geez. he attacked her. Well, so, thankfully he didn't. Yeah. While they waited, <laughs> Mr. Randall Hansen and Miss Braden laughed about how long the police were taking to respond, and she took notes as he discussed his relationship with his housemate and his other aspects of his life. Miss Braden said she didn't feel threatened by the murderer and felt that it was her duty to keep him there until police arrived. She also revealed that Randall Hansen had visited her the year before the murder. She said he'd been to me before because he was having trouble at the college he was attending at the time. Mm -hmm. So. How old was was he again? He was 50. Still in college? Hey. Uh, we'll go back to college later yep. in life. You don't know their lives. That comes right back to it's never too late to start um, start college. Just, you know, please don't kill anyone when you start college. Yeah. So after two officers arrested Randall Hansen after an hour-long wait, police went to his apartment and found Derek Marnie's body slumped against a radiator, an eight-inch knife next to him. Ooh. Yeah. Derek Marnie is 70. Or was. Oh, was 70? And he's 50. Yeah. Are they both in college? No. No? No. Oh. Um, okay. <laughs> his body laid there for 10 days while oh, Randall Hansen continued living in the apartment. Now you know that started decomposing. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. And you're just living next? I don't. Besides. Insane. Besides the fact that he killed the man, he's living next to a decomposing corpse. Yeah. It, I think, I'm pretty sure it was in the kitchen, too. Where, so. Where you are going to prep and cook your food. And probably eat your food if you have a little kitchenette. I don't think he was eating next to it. I'm going to say at least that. <laughs> okay. Um, Hopefully he was going into the other room. It, I, I can't even pretend to know. <laughs> um, we don't know the, the apartment floor plan. Right. Miss Braden said that the police admitted that they thought it was a prank before they arrived. Which makes me mad. Anyway, the first trial collapsed due to Randall Hansen's refusal to give evidence or cooperate with his defense team. Finally, during the second trial, the court heard how Randall Hansen and Marnie met a spiritualist church in Brighton. A year later, Marnie invited him to move into his apartment for company. The two, while not lovers, slept in the same bed and Randall Hansen claimed that Marnie had sexually assaulted him three times. I'm glad you read my mind because I was just thinking he invited him to live with him. Yes. As 
Because I'm sitting here thinking he relations. Okay. Um, I mean, <laughs> I would understand wanting to physically hurt somebody who is assaulting you. Yeah. When he confessed, he said he must have stabbed Marnie after he confronted him while making sandwiches, but said that he didn't overtly try to murder him. Oh, so he was just, like, cutting the sandwich. Marnie Turned came around, up Marnie and... happened to be there, Okay, basically. In another article, it said that he was confronted in his bedroom, so I'm not sure if it's the journalist getting the wrong info or if it's the killer changing his story, which it could be both. Okay, but also if he was... In the kitchen, decomposing. I feel like the well, it doesn't sandwich. say. It just says that he was lying next to a radiator. It I thought you said he was in the kitchen. I said I thought he was in the kitchen. Oh, but I don't know where I got that information. I might have just made it up in my head. <laughs> so, just making it all up. Yep, made this entire story up. I'm really clever like that. Oh, um, look at you. In court, Braden was a key witness where she showed the cards he had picked. Although one card was kept from the jurors. Which was? Justice. Ooh. So I think they thought, like, if they knew one of the other cards was justice, they would have been like, oh, Oh. well, he definitely did it. Yeah. Guys, he definitely did it. (laughs) Yeah. The cards told me. Um. (laughs) The cards never lie. It was in court she first became aware of the brutality of Randall Hansen's attack. So she, the whole time she didn't know, like, how, like, she thought it was an accident. Mm-hmm. And once she finally got to court, she found out that... It wasn't. It was not. Okay. She said that she has no sympathy for him. I formed a rapport because I had to, she said. I knew what I was doing. I knew I had to keep him there. I knew it was that was my duty as well, and I'm big on duty. I can let petty things go, but that is duty. After a two-week trial at Croydon Crown Court, Mr. Randall Hansen was jailed for life with a minimum of 15 years after being convicted of murder after a two-week trial. Miss Braden added that she has since had a message from Mr. Marnie, who is a psychic medium himself. Okay. Yeah. Uh, She says, I never knew Derek, but I have a regular customer who had visited him him for years. This week she came for a reading and the final card was the medium. We both knew it was Derek reaching out to say thank you. Aww. And that is my short and sweet story about a psychic who solved a murder, kind of. (laughs) Well, I'm... Glad that she solved a murder, and I'm glad that he came back from the dead to say... <laughs> he came back from the dead. He just rove out of a, out of a coffin like a vampire. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, you know what I mean. He, he came to visit. Yes. And just wanted to say thank you. And yes. Yes. Okay. All right. My story this week is about Preston Manor, one of Britain's most haunted houses. So, my sources are ghoststory.co.uk, Wikipedia, and an episode of Most Haunted. Originally built in 1600, major renovations and altering occurred in 1738. Most people who know anything about the paranormal, or who watch, listen, or read anything paranormal-related, know that renovations of any type can almost always lead to paranormal events escalating. It was then bought by the Stanford family in 1794, and it was their family home for the next 138 years. 
It was renovated once more by this family in 1903, just to keep it up to date with the new Edwardian taste of the time. During this time, the family living in the manor did experience a few terrifying things. Gotta love terrifying things in your own home. One was that of a disembodied ham gripping the four-poster bed and then moving up and down it. And I, I'm constantly thinking, every time I read that or saw that anywhere, I'm thinking of Thing from the Adams Family. Just Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's not what I thought. <laughs> I know. That was my other thought. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, also reported during that time were what was described as a petrifying noise and the appearance of a white lady. Just petrifying noise? There's no description of the noise? No, there's no description. Just petrifying. You hear it and you go... That could be anything. That it, could be like a, a child giggling. That could be like a blood-curdling scream. True. I hear a child child giggling and there's no children around. I'm gonna run. Hearing a Chad giggling is just as bad. <laughs> Hearing a what? A Chad. You said Chad originally. So. <laughs> oh jeez. Chad or child? Okay. Sorry if your Frick. name is Chad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Chad. I'm sorry you were named that. <laughs> Oh, jeez. Okay. The White Lady, or the Lady in White, is the earliest and most famous ghost of Preston Manor. She was first mentioned in the 16th century and was last seen in 1903. Mm. At least that was the last recorded sighting. She's still seen, just not like she was. Towards the end of the 19th century, however, the Lady in White was very active in Preston Manor. She would appear about every six weeks, roaming all over the manor. She could be seen in the neighboring churchyard, walking among the graves, the garden, the kitchen, and multiple bedrooms. One of the children in the Stanford family, familiar with the stories of the ghost, is said to have seen the white lady in 1896 as she was walking from the drawing room to the staircase. Apparently, when she went to go and touch her, she disappeared. I don't like that. Soon after, another Stanford child saw the spirit standing at the top of those stairs. Later on that same year, a friend of the family was staying with them in hopes of seeing her. <laughs> yeah, that's a good friend right there. Yeah. I want to see it. <laughs> Luckily for him, them, I don't know if it's him. Luckily for them, they stumbled upon her in the entrance hall. <laughs> so... The family justified the backtrack. <laughs> the family, who was justifiably scared, hired a medium in order to conduct a series of seances. One of the seances was held on November 11th, 1896. During this particular seance, the medium had contact with the white lady. She had communicated that her name was Sister Agnes and that she had been a nun who was wrongfully excommunicated from the church. Mm. On top of being so wrongfully excommunicated, she had also... That is not how you spell Ben. <laughs> ben? B-I-N? I spelled it B-E-N-E. <laughs> ben. Ben. Yes. Like, like, like the witch from the Scotland story. The Ben. That's B-E-A-N. She had also been buried in unconsecrated ground outside of the house. 
This little tidbit of information is so important because a year later, the family living in the manor had all gotten severely sore throats, which then prompted the inspection of the pipes and drains of the manor. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> oh, that's... Oh, my... Okay, I know I said my worst fear was something the last time I recorded. That's my worst fear. Ingesting body. Mm. While the drains of the house were being inspected, the skeletal remains of a woman were discovered. Oh. They were dated to be about 400 years old and were believed to belong to Sister Agnes. No! Ew! Oh, no. <laughs> I know, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. Horrifying. I'm going to throw up. That's so gross. <laughs> yeah, please don't. <laughs> While ingesting the bottom was... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. While that whole scenario was a nightmare, on the plus side, her bones are reburied, and the white lady has not made any further recorded appearances since two additional sightings in 1903. Once in a billiard room and once in a bedroom. I'm never going to get past <laughs> ingesting somebody's body, tissue, fluid. Gross. Ew. <laughs> but there's, it's a dead body. Yes, yes it is. While the white lady is the most famous ghost, there are also reports of two gentlemen who fight on one of the staircases of the manor. Who fight? Who fight. Okay. Like, I'm imagining either, like, fist fighting or just... Push him down the stairs. Oh, like, swords. <laughs> or, like, sword okay. fighting. I'm okay. thinking of, the, of that scene from The Princess Bride with Inigo Montoya. <laughs> my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare, Prepare to die. Okay, so I was thinking about Inigo Montoya yesterday. Yeah. Instead of thinking Inigo Montoya, I thought... Esteban Julio Carlo Montoya de la Rosa Ramirez. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> no, I was like, my name is Esteban Julio Ricardo Montoya de la Rosa Ramirez. You could look, no, that's all right. But I was oh, like, geez. wait. <laughs> and I don't know what's worse, that I got that wrong, or that I remember the but entire remember name. name. Yeah. Oh. It's okay. I've done that with um, the girl from Spy Kids. Carmen. Oh, yeah. Carmen Elizabeth Bonita Ecoscope. I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> My tongue's not working, apparently. I do that all the time with her, though. That's great. <clears throat> okay. There is also a report of an evil presence in the Southwest bedroom. The entity can be heard moving around the room and then felt... Leaning over you in bed. Ew. Which, that's creepy regardless, but... The south side of the building is apparently a focus for the paranormal activity. The strange noises, objects being moved, dresses being cut, and doors opening and closing on their own, thank you, chair, are all reported <laughs> Are all reported out of the southwest side of the building. But, I mean, also rude, just destroying women's dresses. Yeah, that's not cool. Dresses. Dresses. <laughs> What? Where are my dresses? <laughs> Other apparitions seen are that of a gray-clad woman in the boiler room on the main staircase and on the parapet of the roof. 
how often has this gray lady been seen? Or like how, because what if the white lady became the gray lady? Well, apparently they're different enough that there's a distinction. Oh, I was going to say like reverse Gandalf. <laughs> no, apparently they're different enough that there is a distinction. Oh, okay. To those who don't know, a parapet is that little half wall that's on top of castles or business buildings that help people... Help people. <laughs> that help keep people from just, you know, toppling off the side. I did not know that. Do you think she was up there because it didn't work? Probably. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. Okay. One security guard also reported seeing a ghost in old-fashioned black clothing walking across the landing in the 1990s. Hmm. Here's my favorite little part, though. A cute little Casper the Friendly ghost who has been spotted riding across the grounds of Preston Manor on a little toy tractor. So I'm just imagining one of those little Tykes John Deere tractors just (laughs) puttering along. I don't think they had those (laughs) back then. They didn't. So obviously it's like walking it or something, but that's what I'm imagining. Kid ghosts make me so sad, but that is cute. Yeah, it, yeah. It has been reported that when you're going up and down stairs, you can hear footsteps following you, which, if you want to look at this skeptically, this can be easily explained by saying the floorboards are floorboards. <laughs> floorboards. I don't like that. By saying, yeah, I don't like it either. By saying the floorboards are loose due to the settling of the foundation. Yeah, but even if you're walking downstairs and they're, like, loose, you would feel that it wouldn't necessarily make a noise right behind you. That's true. Valid point. In the basement, where the servants' quarters were, the service bells will frequently ring. This is odd mainly to the fact that all but one of the bells has had the wires cut and disabled. No, that's like haunting of Hill House. I know, right? That's so creepy. Yeah, that's very creep up. Creep up. Creep up. (laughs) Creep up. Creepy. Creep up, motherfucker. There is also. <laughs> I just imagine like a like a like a zombie being like creep up, motherfucker. <laughs> there we go. Oh yeah, it's got dark. Give me light. Okay. Move. Alright. <laughs> there is also the overwhelming feeling of fear in the in the basement slash servants' quarters. A different nun is frequently seen in the corridors especially by young children playing. Children have a tendency to play and speak with her. However, when an adult approaches, approaches, she just disappears. A lady in gray is seen coming through a cabinet that was once a doorway into another room and up a set of stairs right beside the cabinet. With this information... (laughs) (laughs) With this information, I feel like she in particular is part of a residual haunting because... Obviously, that cabinet is no longer a doorway. Right. I love those ghosts that, like, still follow the original floor plan. I just think it's just, fun. And just walk through walls. I and, just feel like it adds more of an effect. And have their that. feet yeah. two feet beneath the floor. Yeah. <laughs> I'm stuck in the floor. Help me, I'm sinking. Falls. <laughs> it's really funny watching things pop out of a cabinet. <laughs> That's just me. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned popping out. Oh, okay. (laughs) During an episode of Most Haunted, when they visited this manor, the episode begins with investigators walking around, and there are a bunch of creaking noise 
that are growing on that really can't be attributed to them walking. They also bring in two psychics. One of them picked up the presence of a woman in distress. Hmm. He picked up that surprise, surprise, she's a nun. There's so many fucking nuns. <laughs> so many in this nuns. House. Without any prior information, he accurately picked up on the spot where the bones had been discovered after their hasty burial more than 400 years ago. Oh, don't talk about it. I'm gonna, it's going to make you throw up. <laughs> D- just don't. <laughs> uh, what I found most interesting is the way the psychic said he was presen- presented with the information. Apparently, as he was walking through, he saw her body pop up from the ground through the glass doors that were there as, as if she was a stereotypical vampire rising from its sleep. <laughs> is this a ghost or a vampire? Well, what's even funnier is because of the preconceived notion of vampires just... Yeah. Whoop, uh, as he was describing it, I also kind of pictured her just launching herself at him oh, after rising completely from the ground. Oh, <laughs> that's scary. Yeah, it actually was. In, yeah, in my mind, yeah. He also picked up that there had been a monastery there that was built on the that property. That explains it. Okay, yeah. look, I was like, why are there so many nuns? Yeah, but... What's funny is that there's no real evidence of the monasteries being there. Oh. Other than, like, obviously physical records, but there's no building left over. There's... Except for the graveyard. Oh. Yeah. There's a graveyard. Did you say that? Yeah. I don't... Well, I called it the churchyard. Oh, okay. But graveyard. Yeah. And it was later confirmed with their research that the monastery had been there. Huh. So... The only reason I find that one particular guy so compelling is that they brought in both psychics who knew absolutely nothing about the manor and its history. This psychic was so accurate with everything he said that it was verified with actual physical proof from the past. That's crazy. But the other guy seemed to either make it all up on the spot or was reading energies based on the antiques brought in because Uh. nothing he was saying could be verified with any documentation in recorded history. Oh. So, that is the Preston Manor. I like that. I mean, it was spooked, and I don't like that thing about the pipes. Oh, <laughs> But it was good. No. No, no, no. It is actually a museum today that you can go and visit. Oh. So, I- that is all the time we have for today, kids. Thanks for joining us. I don't think you want us anymore. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Myths and Misfortunes or Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can just search using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can both be found in the description below. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, Bye, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye.